I'm learning all kinds of things. Yeah, it's an old podcasting trick, my friend. And you clearly um, are an old podcaster. That I, that I picked up in the old days Very of, old of podcaster. podcasting during my, my last... But anyway, the students are interested in that. Should we get started? <laughs> so welcome, everyone, to another episode of Cheap Talk. I'm Jeff Kaplow, Assistant Professor of Government at William & Mary. I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Marcus, what's on your mind today? Well, lots of things are on my mind. I was just watching the town hall last night with President Trump on ABC. That was very interesting. But what I really was thinking about today, because uh, I've been thinking about this with respect to my class, is nuclear weapons. Something you know a little, little something about. Now, finally, we're, we're, we're speaking my language, Marcus. All right. So here's a question for you, Professor Kaplow. Nuclear weapons are, I think, obviously very effective. You know, they make a big, big boom. They kill lots of people. They're, they're horrendously um, sort of effective in that regard. And we tend to think about why nuclear weapons have not been used since the end of World War II uh, through a couple of different frameworks. Uh, but it's, it's curious, right? I mean, it's weird. If, if these things are so effective, uh, why don't states use them? And, you know, I think when Trump was on the campaign trail uh, back in 2016, I think he actually said at one point, you know, what good are nuclear weapons if you can't if you can't use them? So I was just curious what your what your take is on this. Like, why haven't states used nuclear weapons since the end of World War Two? Yeah, thanks, Marcus. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we can leave all this kind of norms and individuals stuff behind and finally focus on on some real international security. So so thanks for thanks for uh, the idea. So um yeah, I think the the lack of nuclear use since the end of World War II is maybe one of the enduring puzzles of of international relations. We here we have a weapon that is undoubtedly uh, powerful and um, intimidating. It would you know, you know some folks credit the nuclear weapons for ending World War II when when World War II ended, um, and so there, there's a real question: Why have states not used it? And it's not that states don't have nuclear weapons. We have uh, now nine nuclear weapon states, and uh, many countries have lots of them. And so, why why have these why have these weapons not been used since World War II? It's a great question. I think there are kind of three schools of thought that try to explain this puzzle. One is norms. This idea that there's a norm against nuclear use that it's somehow seen as beyond the pale to use nuclear weapons is somehow qualitatively different than other kinds of military power. Another school of thought is around military effectiveness. And this argument is that while nuclear weapons are powerful, they are not necessarily effective in achieving the aims of the country that wants to use them. And this goes back to, you know, why would you want to use nuclear weapons? Is the goal really to destroy the territory, to kill the people? Not really. It's to get some kind of political end out of your out of your use of military power, and if you just you know destroyed a country and covered it with radiation that allows no one to to go there and killed all of its population, then this isn't something that's a military goal anymore. So they're really not military effective in that way. So that's another school of thought. And and then the third category of answer to this question uh, revolves around strategic interactions of of countries. And this idea that it's not really in a country's best interest to use nuclear weapons because of the ripple effects that will have in terms of the willingness of other countries to acquire or use nuclear weapons in the future. 
The idea is here is that if, if the United States goes ahead and uses its nuclear weapons again, then this signals to other countries that, wow, they really need nuclear weapons to defend themselves. And so they will then seek nuclear weapons themselves. Other countries might see nuclear use by the U.S. as a real reason to use nuclear weapons themselves, to acquire nuclear weapons themselves, to demonstrate that they too are willing to go the extra mile in military destructive power to defend themselves against U.S. aggression. This category of explanation to the puzzle of non-use also ties into a, a kind of logic of consequence. So I guess there's, that's another way of looking at this, right? That, that there's the kind of normative explanations, but then there are logic of consequences, explanations either pertaining to military effectiveness or some kind of strategic interaction in the future. I don't want to use nuclear weapons now because of the way I think that'll affect the international landscape in the future. Okay, great. That's that's interesting. That's helpful. I mean, I think it'd be worthwhile just sort of laying out also why this puzzle is so puzzling to a lot of scholars. I mean, this has been an area that um, international relations theorists and, and analysts have been looking at for several decades. And it's a tricky question for a couple of different reasons. I think one is that obviously when something doesn't happen, that can be harder to explain than something that does happen. So we have this sort of, you know, dogs that don't bark problem where you know, we, we have a non-outcome essentially. And so therefore looking at non-outcomes can be kind of challenging because you can't really piece together exactly uh, why you didn't get something. It's easier typically to, to piece together why you did do something. So there's that, there's that issue. But then there's this also this basic problem, which is that a lot of the sort of ways that we thought about nuclear weapons in the past relied on this idea of deterrence, right? And so, you know, the basic idea of deterrence is that <clears throat> if I believe that you're going to use uh, a nuclear weapon against me, you know, or that you might use a nuclear weapon against me, then I don't want that to happen. And so I, I have to take steps to, to deter you from potentially using a, a nuclear weapon. But what's interesting about that is that we normally think that deterrence requires a credible threat. So for deterrence to work, states have to believe that nuclear weapons might be used. And since they haven't been used since World War II, it's hard to know to what extent that credible threat actually exists. And so I think that that's why those three different sort of ways that you, you laid out that scholars have looked at this, that's why there are three different ways, because there's three different sort of ways to think about this, this very sort of difficult puzzle, which is, you know, deterrence kind of requires a credible threat that you would use nuclear weapons, and yet states haven't used nuclear weapons, and so where, where, where do we make of that credible threat? And that, to me, is a really sort of vexing issue. This question of the usefulness of nuclear weapons and how that ties into deterrence, I think, is really interesting. Let me respond to that quickly. So I, I think this is a real question, whether nuclear weapons are useful currently. And as the longer we've gone without nuclear use, the harder it becomes to make the case that nuclear weapons are really essential for, uh, say, the defense of the United States. Um, and so I, I think this is, this is a real question. In order for nuclear weapons to matter for deterrence, there has to be a credible threat of use, as you said. And the longer we go, the less credible that threat becomes. But if we could go back in time and think of the perspective of national leaders just after World War II, just after two nuclear weapons were dropped on Japan, there was definitely the sense that this is the future of warfare and that everyone was going to have these things. And so in order to defend yourself, you were going to really need to have acquired this capability. And if you look at just the, and we can talk about how acquisition kind of ties into to non-use, because I think these things are very closely related. But if you look at kind of the conversations happening among military leadership and national leadership in many countries in the uh, late 40s and through the 50s, even into the 60s, 
the the acquisition of nuclear weapons was discussed openly as the kind of thing that all the countries are going to have to do. Where are we on our trajectory of getting nuclear weapons? And this discussion is happening in countries that you don't usually think of as countries that are, you know, very militaristic or eager to get the latest military technology. These are countries like Switzerland and Sweden and Australia and countries that, you know, we now see as kind of pillars of the nonproliferation community. But in those days, this was kind of the the conversation that everyone was having. It was seen as a necessary thing because it was seen as militarily useful. And because it was militarily useful, everyone was going to need them. And then you fast forward to now, and it's a much more difficult case to make that nuclear weapons lend any credibility at all, that they're of any use at all, and particularly if it would be of any use between a country that has nuclear weapons and a country that does not have nuclear weapons, right? And this is a particularly vexing problem. Could the U.S. ever credibly threaten to use nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear weapon state? And the U.S. has attempted to make the case that it could, but I think um, that's a tough that's a tough sell. So this this question of usefulness, I think, is very important. So, so Jeff, wh- where do you sort of come down on this? Where do you what do you think is the best explanation for this non-use of of nuclear weapons? I personally uh, come down more on the side of strategic interaction as explaining why we haven't seen nuclear use over the years, um, and I think it's it's kind of easy to see that logic, especially in the early days, that, that countries were kind of worried about keeping a lid on nuclear use, first of on nuclear proliferation for the fear that that begets further nuclear proliferation, and then on nuclear use for fear that this lowers the bar for nuclear use for others. Um, and so you can kind of see that logic in the way people talk about nuclear weapons um, through the 60s. Uh, and then more recently, and this is where um, there's a, a great book, a pathbreaking book by Nina Tanewald that, that talks about the nuclear taboo. And one of the, the things that, that um, uh, Nina points out in her book is the way the language around nuclear weapons has changed over time and the way nuclear the, the language around nuclear use has changed and where before it was the thing that was talked about it it, it isn't really talked about in the same way anymore um, and so one explanation for this is that there's a taboo but another explanation for this is that um, countries really see this as a settled issue that they they no longer need to speak about nuclear weapons in the same way because if for the most part, nuclear use is not on the table in any kind of regular way, not because of the taboo, but because um, it's just not going to be in a country's best interest to use nuclear weapons and open the door for future use of nuclear weapons. This is a, a complicated problem to discern empirically, I think I, sh- I should point out, because these things are really observationally equivalent. Like It's really very difficult to come up with a, with a research design that will distinguish between a nuclear taboo, where nuclear weapons are not talked about in the same way as other kinds of military power because there's a taboo around them, because there's a strong norm against their use, and a logic of consequence kind of argument where nuclear weapons are not talked about in the same way because everyone knows that using them would then create this strategic interaction that's that's not not good for anyone. For the same way, we don't talk about other options that are unattractive, right? Like if, if you know there's some there's some option, there's some policy option, but that's a horrible option, it doesn't often come up in conversation. And so that doesn't necessarily mean there's a taboo around it. It's just not a great idea. And so we we can see the same kind of um, the same kind of dynamic playing out in leadership discussions around nuclear weapons. 
Well, uh, I'm first of all, I'm very heartened to see you bring up leaders and the and the things that leaders are talking about because it dovetails nicely with what we talked about last week, uh, which is that the you know leaders might might play a role in all this and and what they say is probably uh, important. So I, I think we agree on that. The other thing I'll uh, say before we get into the taboo question um, is one of the things that you said I, I I completely agree with and I think it's sometimes overlooked is the extent to which not only policymakers, but sort of early IR scholars in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s were, were legitimately concerned that the, the international system might just blow up, right? So you get this use of nuclear weapons in, in World War II, and as you point out, that immediately has all these causal effects where states say, well, what, you know, we need to get them, and this is the future of warfare. And, and so one of the things from a, a sort of normative perspective that, you know, they might not talk about this uh, in their text themselves, but it's, it's clear if you go back and look at the, the things that they were debating at the time that these sort of classical realists and you know these idealists that that sort of were popping up around the time you know they they're really committed to this idea that they need to figure this out they need to figure out how to stop people stop states from using nuclear weapons because otherwise the whole world's going to blow up and so you know there's there's a lot of critiques about ir theory and a lot of critiques about you know it's it's too uh focused on the west and i think there's a lot to to sort of back up that critique and i agree with a lot of that but the one thing i will say to sort of support them uh in their mission was that they took this threat very seriously and i think it's easy for us now in 2020 to look back and say of course the world wasn't going to blow up that you know nuclear weapons would make no sense no one wants to fight a nuclear war that that just wasn't the case back then they didn't know that that was going to happen and i think that's actually a very recent sort of way of looking at it It comes in you know sort of the end of the cold war in the 1980s and early 1990s we finally got to the point where you know we sort of realized that maybe we're not going to have nuclear annihilation after all but that that was not the case back then. So I'm glad to to hear you bring that up because I think it's a point that's often often lost in some of these discussions. It might make sense for us to talk a little bit about this taboo. So you you mentioned it in sort of passing as one of these arguments for why states don't use nuclear weapons. And I and I would agree with you completely that this is a deep empirical problem because whether actors are acting because of something normative, so there's a sort of a norm against using nuclear weapons, or just because frankly it doesn't make sense to do strategically we're likely to see the same types of things. And, and as you note, in Nina Tannenwald's book, she takes this on uh, and she recognizes that this is an issue. She recognizes that people are gonna have this exact criticism and, and you know, makes the point that it's not easy. So what is this taboo? So you know, we think about the way that states interact and, and uh, sort of the, the ways that we can explain what they, what they do. One of the things that's come up in this conversation is this logic of consequence we talked about last, last time where you know, states are basically making calculations about the costs and benefits of, of actions. Uh, and they make decisions based on those calculations. Now, if they think that using a nuclear weapon is going to be incredibly costly because they're likely to get struck back, for example, then they're not going to use them, presumably. And so for that reason, from a sort of rational logic of consequences perspective, uh, it doesn't make sense for them to use them, so they don't. The other way of looking at this, though, is uh, through something that we talk about as logic of appropriateness, uh, where basically what, what Tannenwald argues is that over time, and this is, this is an important point, it's not something that develops sort of overnight, but, but over time, you know, through the, the Korean War, through the Vietnam War, you start to see more and more policymakers talking about uh, the sort of moral implications of nuclear weapons. Um, and she makes the case that as this norm sort of gets internalized, right? So the, the idea of internalize is, is the sort of, you know, tipping point at which, you know, a norm really takes hold and everybody sort of agrees with it and they start acting, you know, in accordance with the norm. What she sees is these policymakers, you know, sitting around tables at the Defense Department and elsewhere 
sort of talking about the moral implications of, of nuclear weapons and, and the sort of moral prohibitions against using them. So, you know, she would expect if the, the logic of consequences framework was right, she would expect to see lots of indicators of people talking about costs and benefits, talking about, you know, the likely reaction that states will have and why this might make sense or not make sense strategically. And what she finds is that you get that early on. So in the, in the you know, the 40s and 50s, you see this. But as you move through uh, the 60s and 70s, for example, you start to get more discussion of, of morality. And so for her, that's, a, that's an indication, that's an empirical indication that her theory that there's a, a norm uh, against nuclear use has, has sort of taken hold. Marcus, can you explain what is the difference between a taboo and a norm? Okay, so that's a great question. So one way to think about norms is that they vary in sort of uh, intensity in terms of, you know, you could have a norm, for example, that's, that's very, uh, what they talk about is sort of deontological, right? So it's like, the norm might be something like do not speed. And if you speed, you have broken, you've broken the norm. And that's, that's just simply a, a, a sort of prohibition type of thing. You can't, you can't speed no matter what. There's other norms, though, that um, are a little bit more flexible. And, and I think you could argue a little bit more um, sort of uh, utilitarian in nature, which is to say, maybe the norm says something like, don't speed uh, unless it's like an emergency, like your wife is having a baby. And so you have to get her to the hospital. And so forth. you can speed in that in that situation. Or uh, one of the examples I use in one of my, uh, my articles that I wrote with a, a co author of mine is there's a there's sort of two different rules about shouting, right? One rule is, do not shout. This would be sort of a prohibition. This is a deontological, like you are not allowed to shout. Another norm would be similar. Uh, see to it that shouting is minimized, right? And so that's sort of saying we, we value uh, a lack of shouting. We don't want there to be shouting. But every once in a while, you kind of need to shout, right? If I'm in a crowded room and people are shouting, I might have to shout to get them to shut up, right? So the norm is sort of saying like that, that might be an instance where that's allowed because overall you're going to reduce shouting, but in order to get to that outcome, you actually have to shout yourself, right? So this is, I think this is two different ways of thinking about it. One is sort of deontological and you can't do something no matter what. And the other is, is more sort of utilitarian. You want to minimize or maximize a particular value, minimize shouting or minimize the use of, of nuclear weapons. And so I think one way to think about what Tannenwald is, has basically done here is you can think about the shift from a norm to a taboo as being about uh, we have something that's sort of utilitarian in nature, which is we don't want to use nuclear weapons. We think using nuclear weapons is bad. Uh, we shouldn't use them. And that gets strengthened and internalized over time to become really a prohibition against nuclear weapons, right? And so a taboo is, is not only a very strong sort of uh, stigma against using nuclear weapons, it's a very strong prohibition to the extent to which in policymakers' minds, it basically becomes unthinkable. Right. And so this is where the empirical part becomes really interesting for her, which is she can she can sort of track over time. You see them talking about nuclear weapons and potentially using them early on in these the beginning stages of this norm developing. It gets stronger and stronger. And then eventually you don't see them even talking about it anymore because it becomes unthinkable. The idea of, of the United States, for example, nuking another country just is not even talked about. Right now, we, we discussed a second ago how this is empirically problematic, because I think that outcome is, as you note, observably the same as an outcome that would be, they're not talking about it because it would make no sense, and everybody knows it makes no sense strategically to do this, and so therefore it doesn't even come up on the sort of menu of options for states, right? And that's a really difficult problem. I think that the one piece of evidence that supports Tannenwald's idea here is that change over time. So by showing that, you know, at, at time, you know, T1, there was some discussion of strategic stuff, right? And that at time two, there's less of it. And then by the time you get to, to T3, they're not even talking about it anymore. And you couple that with the idea that moral arguments were being brought up in the room uh, when these things were talked about. 
you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a, I don't know if it's strong evidence, but it's a, it's a sort of nice, uh, uh, sort of set of empirical indicators, uh, that might suggest that she's, she's onto something. So, but then what, what do you make of the continued prominence of nuclear weapons in, for example, U.S. strategic thinking? We maintain this nuclear arsenal. We are undergoing nuclear modern, modernization. Nuclear weapons is a big part of, you know, the Defense Department's quadrennial defense reviews. How does that fit with this idea that nuclear use is beyond the pale is unthinkable? If it's unthinkable, why do we need nuclear weapons? Yeah, I mean, I think for for Tannenwald, the idea would be that the the sort of thing that she's interested in explaining, the dependent variable, is this sort of non-use, right? And so I think she might say, look, it's it's certainly consistent that we would internally know that we would never use these nuclear weapons. And also, we want to be able to have effective nuclear weapons targeted, you know, the ability to have targeted strikes and 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 so on and so forth. Um, for a couple of different reasons. I mean, I think one. Taboos and norms um, are they they're internalized at differential rates uh, around the world, right? So it's not inconceivable that you could have a situation where some some bad actor state comes along, uh, having not had this internalized taboo, and it's not having an internalized norm. In which case, having the threat of nuclear weapons would actually uh, be helpful. So if you can imagine a, a state, you know, that's that says. We don't have this taboo. Like you guys in the West might have it, or you guys in the United States might have it, or the UK has it. But but we we're a country. You know, does we don't need to name it. But they could have a, a a sort of sense in which, well, we don't we don't share that taboo. That's not internalized here. And if that's the case, you still want to be able to have that deterrent threat. So uh, there's a, like a little bit of a disjuncture between how internalized the norm is at state A and the, and how internalized it is at state state B. The other thing is, and I, I don't think Tannenwald necessarily makes this argument per se, but I, I do think that norms in general have this tendency to sort of ebb and flow. So uh, part of the thing with, with norms is that they're, they're ideas that exist in people's heads. There might be some policymakers and some individuals for whom it's easier to have that norm in your head than others. We talked about Donald Trump a second ago, him sort of questioning why you can't use nuclear weapons and assuming that wasn't just a rhetorical strategy and, and sort of a campaign thing to get people's attention. If he actually believed that, or he actually had that question in his head, would be an indication that, at least for that policymaker, that norm is not particularly well internalized, right? And so I think that that does sort of challenge Tannenwald's thesis a little bit, that there might be policymakers that don't believe this stuff. But it is also consistent with the idea that norms are never sort of binary in nature, right? It's not necessarily that everybody always has them, or every single policymaker is going to agree. It's more that the, there's sort of a, a, a critical mass of people that you know, have adopted this idea from the normative sort of stigmatization of, of nuclear use. And so therefore, it's unlikely to, 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 for these states to use nuclear weapons in the future. Yeah, I think that's true of norms in general, but I, I don't think that's true of what we usually mean when we say taboo, right? I mean, my sense of a taboo is that this is something that is just universally or nearly universally felt to be outside the bounds of reasonable behavior in the, in the same way that like, you know, cannibalism is always held up as this example of a taboo, right? This is not something that, you know, you would expect, well, at least a majority of Americans don't support cannibalism. You know, that would it be a taboo then? No, it needs to be something that's more widely held, a deeper belief that seems kind of so far outside the norm that it's, it would be crazy to contemplate continuing it. Well, I mean, I think this is it, it, this is one area where a lot of scholars have sort of, you know, pushed Tannenwald to to defend this idea. Right. Because she didn't she didn't have to use the word taboo. Right. She could have just said this is a very strong norm. 
In which case, if she had said that, then your your criticism, your critique would probably not not be as powerful, right? Because you, she could have just laid, you know, sort of push back on the idea that everybody has to have it, and and you know, therefore it's a uh, it's it's not the case that everybody has to have it. So therefore, this is a still a norm that has considerable strength. Her use of taboo is interesting. Now, you know, I, I do think there's something to the idea when you think empirically about the fact that these things just do not come up in the policy discussions that she's, she's looking at. In, in, in situations where you would expect from a, a sort of cost and benefits perspective to see them talking about, at least, at least just as option C, as option D or, or E or F, it doesn't happen. And so it might be because, you know, you're right that it's just, it's, okay, maybe there's some normative part of this. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really more about strategic interaction. But if she's right, it's because there's this like really strong, prohibitive, uh, deontological thing which says, no, you just do not use nuclear weapons. End of story. And I think it's fair to, to, to sort of question how strong that actually is. And, you know, if somebody comes along like a Donald Trump that doesn't share that, then that might, you know, sort of indicate either the taboo never existed in the first place, or at the very least, maybe we've sort of regressed and now it's not so much a taboo, but, but you know, more of a, of a strong, a strong norm. I mean, I, I got to say, I, I, I do think these challenges to, to what she's saying are, are credible. And I, and I do think that this is an argument that's very, in some ways, very intuitive. And I, and I happen to sort of like the logic of it. And I, and I think empirically, I think she does a good job of showing, you know, how this has changed over time. But it is open to these types of criticisms, because, you know, it gets back to the very first problem we identify, which is that when something doesn't happen, you know, there's there are there are presumably many different reasons for that. And if if these things are non-observable in the sense that we don't have evidence of them sort of, you know, talking about the norm itself or saying, hey, we can't do this because there's a taboo against nuclear weapons. That's never going to happen. Right. So it's it's very difficult to, to sort of make the case that it's always about the taboo that's driving behaviors and and alternate explanations abound. So, Marcus, would your answer to the puzzle that you framed at the beginning of this conversation how do we explain the non-use of nuclear weapons since World War II? Would your answer be because of the nuclear taboo? I think so. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I really like this idea. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting about the logic of appropriateness generally, and this is something that I, I talk to my students about all the time, is that it's not always the case that the logic of appropriateness and the logic of consequences don't line up, right? So you might think, you know, oh, I have, I have the explanation for why uh, you know, they're not using nuclear weapons and it has to do with the, the, the consequences of, of using them, et, et cetera, right? And if it just so happens to be that that also <laughs> lines up with the explanation for, you know, the logic of appropriateness, which in this case, it might very well be, be true, right? That that's, that's kind of problematic because you can't really show, you know, oh, my, my way of explaining is better than your way of explaining it because they, they're sort of congruent, right? But I, I think if, if anybody hasn't read the Tannenwald book, I, I encourage you to do so and go through the evidence that, that she has and, and sort of look at the policy documents. And, and you know, I, I, I go back to the idea that she tells a very credible story about um, the changing discourse over time with, with the use of, of nuclear weapons that to me is, is highly compelling. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's the only reason why states, you know, don't do these things. I think a lot of times it doesn't make sense strategically. But to me, the norm, if I had to pick an explanation, I really, I really do think uh, the norm has, or the taboo, has a lot to do with it. It might be worthwhile at this point also talking about some of the other evidence. So we've talked about, you know, sort of the discursive evidence in favor of, of the Tannenwald sort of thesis, but there are, there are a couple of different things that people have brought up over, over the years that might challenge the idea of a taboo. Maybe we should talk about those things a little bit. So some scholars have taken a different approach to getting at this, this question. 
um, by doing a survey experiment. And the way this works is you give some research subjects a vignette about international conflict where conventional weapons were used to, say, attack some terrorist training camp. And then in another version of the vignette, nuclear weapons were used to achieve the same goal. And uh, the respondents are asked, you know, do, do you approve of this action by, say, the United States government? And what these studies have found, or one set of studies like this have found, is that for the American public, at least, there doesn't seem to be this kind of very strong taboo uh, or this very strong disapproval across the board of the use of nuclear weapons. And in fact, if you tell the American public that the use of nuclear weapons was necessary for some military outcome, then they will overwhelmingly support the use of military force, at least in this kind of narrow way of, of measuring um, public opinion. So many scholars have pushed back on this approach as a way of kind of refuting the nuclear taboo, saying that actually U.S. public opinion is not a great way to measure the nuclear taboo, that U.S. public opinion might not matter at all, for example, in, in whether a taboo exists among um, the elite or among the decision makers that are actually thinking about whether to use nuclear weapons. Um, some have pushed back on the way the vignettes are framed, um, and I've argued that if you add, for example, some opinion of a military leader that this wasn't necessary, that we could have achieved the same aim with conventional weapons, that uh, support for nuclear use goes way down. Uh, there, there's a, a kind of a big debate in the literature about, the, about this approach, but it does cast doubt, maybe, on whether this idea of a norm against nuclear use is at least widely shared in the, in the American populace. No, Jeff, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I do have a couple of, of thoughts on this. I do think it's relevant to know sort of how people think about nuclear weapons. We, we can think about this, you know, in terms of the experiment that they did and sort of critique that. But I think just more, most generally, you know, it's, it is important to know that the American public, uh, if, if you ask their opinion, um, indicate that they would use nuclear weapons. Like, I think that's an interesting uh, sort of you know, piece of data. And, and, and if we think about the sort of role that public opinion plays in foreign policy, I mean, there's a lot of debate on that. We could do a whole podcast on that. It might be relevant at some level that the American public supports this. And, and particularly if policymakers know that, uh, that might actually be something that has an effect down the road. But I'm not convinced that this has a lot to say about the nuclear taboo argument for a couple different reasons. The first is, we talked about the logic of appropriateness, and we sort of brushed through very quickly what that what that is. But if you sort of dig into to how this operates, really the thing that it's asking is, what should a person like me be doing in this situation? In other words, given given my identity and given the situation that's occurring, what's the appropriate way to act? And I think if you you think about the logic of appropriateness from that perspective, what you quickly realize is that the American public you know, have no real sort of realistic uh, uh, situation in their lives where they're going to be making these decisions. I mean, you know, the very, 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 very small minority of people uh, will ever be in a position to be even close to making, you know, any type of policy that gets close to nuclear use, right? So if the, if the logic of appropriateness is really about identity, you know, I think what we need to be focusing in on is policymakers and people that are in the room kind of talking about these things. And so this is where Tannenwald, you know, again, I think is right to look at policymakers and what they have to say. So that, that's be, that would be the first thing I would say. The other thing, though, is, is sort of more generally, there is some work to suggest that when you, you do these types of experiments, not, not really these survey experiments, but more things like war games, um, things like simulated crises with, with actual policymakers or at the very least sort of retired officials, I know of a couple of different studies that have, have sort of indicated that, that the morality question does come up in those settings, right? So that would be an indication that 
people who actually have experience making decisions, um, you know, frankly, about life and death, uh, decisions about when to drop bombs and things of that nature, they do take uh, these things seriously. They do take the morality of it seriously. And so, you know, it's somewhat easy for somebody on a, that, that gets a phone call or, or doing a, a survey online to sort of say that they have no problem drafting a nuclear, nuclear weapon when we, we know that they'll never be in that position. But, but furthermore, are not socialized into how policymakers think about these things. And so if you, if you talk to actual policymakers and get their perspective, things are, things are a little bit, um, little bit different. I guess the last thing I would say, too, is that as somebody who studies sort of psychological you know, processes and the way that psychology operates, I think it's really important to keep in mind that a lot of these decisions are made and in, in sort of, or potentially would be made in situations rife with emotion, right? So, so rife with fear, rife with a lot of affect or, or however you want to think about it, and, and are time constrained, right? So the idea of, of using a nuclear weapon presumably comes up not when you're sitting at home in your living room taking a survey uh, in a sort of comfortable environment where you know your life is not threatened, but rather when you receive a phone call saying, you know, a, a potential first strike is on its way, or we have an indication that the a first strike is going to happen. Do you, do you give the okay to, to strike first, or do you give the okay to have a, a second strike? You know, so they're, they're underselling their point because in a way, the fact that people are so comfortably using nuclear weapons in non-emotional, presumably non-emotional, it's kind of cold settings might actually indicate that if you're in a hot setting where your life is on the line or your country is on the line, you might actually be more willing to use, to use nuclear weapons. So uh, all that to say, I think that from an experimental design perspective, there's no way they can simulate what it's like for an actual decision maker to, to be in that moment. They, could, they might do things that can sort of approach some of the things that you might experience by you know, telling you a scary story or, or getting your heart rate up in some, some form or fashion, which some experimentalists try to do. But, but the idea of sort of replicating the sort of situation that these people would be in, I think, fails from a sort of external validity perspective, meaning simply that the, the real world is just going to be very different than this experimental, experimental setting. Uh, Marcus, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. This is the most fun I've had in a very long time. What what's what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's 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 just funny to I can't convey to you strongly enough. Like no one cares. You could just like, <laughs> I can't stop myself. Like it's it's like stupid details right. that that no one is interested. No one's in. listening to this anymore. Like we've got we're well past forty five minutes. So no one's no one listening. All right, start over, Jeff. <laughs>